Okay. Thank you all for coming. This is infinitely more people than I thought would be here for this portion of the evening, so I'm glad you're all here, though. If for anything, to spend some time with our blessed Lord in the sacrament and the quiet and peace and tranquility that this parish church offers. I want to thank Father for the opportunity to uh, speak on such a sacred subject. It may be easy for all of us to love our Lord and spend some time with Him, but when you get to talk about Him, it changes things a little bit and really, really brings home the sacredness of what we're doing, at least for me it did. But no matter how bad this talk goes, at least you'll have, to have, you'll have had time in the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so it can't be that bad. So that brings me, of course, to my main point. This evening I thought this would be an opportune time to, to go over a brief history of the development of Eucharistic adoration and why God loves us adoring his son in the Blessed Sacrament. So those are, those are my goals for this evening. Let's see how well I can achieve this. To put this together, some of the sources I used for maybe that you would like to use further in your own private studies, of course, we have Holy Scripture Plenty of things in there. A lifetime of, of studying right here. Along with that, the bulk of the talk tonight is coming out of the history of Eucharistic adoration, development of doctrine in the Catholic Church by Father John A. Harden, um, who lived around the beginning of the last century, so the beginning of the 1900s. He was a Jesuit priest and a very prolific writer on almost any subject that the church talks about. Also, The Fathers Know Best by Jimmy Aiken, which is a compilation of quotes organized into topics ranging from, from anything, again, that the church covers in, in one succinct book, Quotes of the Church Fathers, in chronological order for each subject as it goes. If you don't have the book, I'd recommend having it. It's definitely one you want to keep on your shelf for reference. And a lot of inspiration from Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist by Brant Petrie, which, of course, the parish gave out just a few months ago. All right, so with that, Eucharistic adoration, as we know it today just like this all over the world, chapels and churches everywhere, some offering it 24-7 and haven't missed a day for decades. We get to do it here, this overnight adoration that we've started just a couple of months ago, this beautiful time that we get to spend with our Lord. Hasn't always looked exactly like this, though. 
in the beginning of Christianity, it was a little bit different. Of course, the first Christians walked with our Lord in his body and blood physically. Some of them all the way to the, to the cross where he died, to the tomb where he was buried, and then he was resurrected again. So they, of course, even going further back, his mother and his earthly father, St. Joseph, could be considered the first adorers of Christ. Christ lived for nine months in the tabernacle of Mary's womb before being born, and then Mary and St. Joseph, the first two adorers of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So some of what I will discuss tonight has to do with the doctrine of the real presence. Now, discussing the development of the doctrine of the, new pres- of the real presence is easy because there's not a lot of development. He's really present. He's always been really present. He was really present in the Gospels. He is really and truly present now in the, in the blessed sacrament that we're adoring tonight. So the development, not a lot. It's just always been there for us. This, this great gift that our Lord has given to us. But to talk of the real presence, of course, we go to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. For your own studies and for your own just private reading, maybe even on a weekly basis, John chapter 6, verses 32 through 71, just the whole bread of life discourse as it's famously known. Some highlights from that for this evening. In verse 51, our Lord says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, of course, 52 says exactly what any ancient Jew would have been feeling at the time. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And now, if our Lord was speaking in metaphors at the time, this was a chance for him to clear up the metaphor and, and let them in on the, what he's trying to talk about. But he doesn't do that here. He doubles down. And then in 53, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up, raise him up at the last day. Of course, I carried on through verse 54 as well. Now the rest of it I'll leave to you to read on your own. But it's definitely something I always come back to in my own personal scripture readings. But this here is the biblical summary 
of the real presence for us, the real presence in the Eucharist. Everywhere around the world in every Catholic church where the holy sacrifice of the Mass is offered, He is really and truly present on our altars, in our monstrances, and in our tabernacles. Always there, waiting for us to spend time with Him. So moving from the Bread of Life discourse to the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which of course have the uh, Last Supper narrative. The Gospel of John doesn't, but the Bread of Life discourse kind of fits perfectly well with what happens at the Last Supper. So in just for example, in, in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 28, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a chalice, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so those are the words that we still hear at every Mass we've ever been to. We hear those words, we call them the words of consecration, the moment, in fact, when our Lord Jesus takes the simple offerings of bread and wine and turns them into his body, blood, soul, and divinity. And so this is, these are the very foundations of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Now we can turn to the earliest Christians. Of course, the apostles after the resurrection, moved from their confined space, the upper room in in Jerusalem, and expanded throughout all the, the surrounding countries and set up churches everywhere. And then they had to govern and teach these churches. And so we get a lot of the beautiful letters that St. Paul left to the churches that maybe he founded or that asked for something from him. Either way, he left us all these beautiful letters that make up the bulk of the New Testament. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we hear St. Paul teaching about the Eucharist. And then in verse 16, we get a very clear statement from him, which says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, if he was talking, if this was only symbolic, now why why would he say these things? And And to further imply the real presence 
being a belief among the apostles and the earliest Christians. You can go to the very next chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, where St. Paul leaves an admonishment for those who are carousing during the Eucharistic celebration during the sacrifice of the Mass. And then we have even the institution of the Eucharist, very similar to what we hear in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right here in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians as well. So those are just a few biblical examples of, of, of what has been left to us by those that came before us that help bring us to where we are now. These are the very foundations of the real presence. So how did we get from that to this is still quite a step to take. And so now we go, we're moving beyond the apostolic age into the the patristic age, the age of the church fathers. And even not that long after the last apostle had died, we come across the writings of St. Ignatius of Antioch, who was martyred around the year 110, give or take a few years. And just some quotes from him that, that, are any, that, that will just leave you with, with exactly what we understand today. They understood almost 2,000 years ago, these earliest Christians, and 2,000 years ago, For the apostles, here we have St. Ignatius of Antioch, taught by the Apostle John, and speaking about the heretics, the early heretics, the Gnostics, he says, they abstain from Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, flesh that suffered for our sins and that the Father in his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God are perishing in their disputes. He minces no words there in that letter to the Smyrnans. In his letter to the Romans, St. Ignatius of Antioch also says, as he's approaching Rome, he's writing to them, he's on his way to martyrdom, and he's leaving instructions for them to try, don't try and save me, I am going to die for our Lord. And he tells them, I have no taste for corruptible food, nor for the pleasure of this life. I desire the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, who was of the seed of David, and for drink I desire his blood, which is love incorruptible. Fast forward a few more years to around the middle of the second century, so about 150 A.D., St. Justin Martyr, writing in in his, what they call apologies or defense of the faith. This is a more lengthy quote, but I think it's just as important so we can have a good understanding of what these earliest Christians believed. He says, we call this food Eucharist, And no one else is permitted to partake of it, except one who believes our teachings to be true and who has been washed in the washing 
that is for the remission of sins and for regeneration. So, those who have been baptized. And is thereby living as Christ enjoined, for not as common bread nor common drink do we receive these. But since Jesus Christ, our Savior, was made incarnate by the word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too, as we have been taught, the food that has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nurtured is both the flesh and the blood of that incarnated Jesus. So as we can see, faith in the real presence was clearly established by Jesus, taught by the apostles, and by the second century was already deeply rooted in Christians wherever they were. From Father Hardin, he writes, Under the impact of this faith, even the early hermits reserved the Eucharist in their cells. From at least the middle of the third century, it was very general for solitaries, hermits, and anchorites. In the east, especially around Palestine and Egypt, to preserve the consecrated elements in the caves or hermitages where they lived. Now, the immediate purpose for this was so that these hermits could give themselves Holy Communion while living away from everyone else. But they were far too conscious conscious of what the real presence was to not treat it with great reverence and to not think of it as serving a sacred purpose by just being nearby. And so what we find is these earliest monks, these hermits, not only are they keeping it reserved in their cells or in their caves, but they start to carry it around on their persons so as to bring viaticum to the dying or Holy Communion to the, to the sick for their healing, but, uh, but also for their own protection. Maybe this happens a little later, but there's the story of St. Tarsisius, a young man, Tarsisius. He was a young acolyte during um, one, of the persecu- one of the Roman persecutions of Christians. Well, when there wasn't a deacon in any of the church to take the Eucharist to the imprisoned, Tarsisius was chosen because of his reverence he had for our Lord in the sacrament. And they knew he could be trusted to take it to those who were imprisoned because most of priests and deacons and even bishops were being imprisoned and tortured and killed. Well, on his way, a group of boys come across him and want him to play, and he ignores them because he's on a mission. He's got our Lord, and he's taking it directly where he's supposed to go. Well, of course... A group of boys is not going to stand for that. And they want him to come and play. So now they go over and they tease him. When they realize he's carrying something and they won't let him have it, now they want to get at it even more. And he fights them viciously. 
to hold on to the, our blessed Lord in the sacrament and not let them have it. And so this angers them. And of course, ultimately, he dies protecting our Lord. And when he is found later, our Lord was safe, still clutched in his fists near his heart. And he died protecting our Lord. This is how much it meant to the earliest Christians, even in times of persecution. The real presence was taken that seriously that people, even young boys, will die for it. So these hermits and monks, though, would also carry it around for their protection. They would carry it around to give to the sick and to the dying. And then also, bishops from other dioceses and their churches would take a host or part of the consecrated host and give it and send it to another bishop who would then use that and their mass that they say as a sign of unity of like what St. Paul says, the one bread and the one body. So now this brings us up to, by, to, up to around the time of the Council of Nicaea, so we're about the mid-300s. By this time, the Blessed Sacrament was being kept in churches of monasteries and convents. There's a famous writing of St. Basil the Great who would store the reserved sacrament in a golden dove high above the altar. The immediate purpose for this, of course, was to reserve it for the sick and the dying, but it was also always given a special place of reservation due to its sacred nature. Originally, it was kept in a room off of the main church. If you've ever been to Conception Abbey and you see where their tabernacle is, it's very similar to that. But of course, over time, the Blessed Sacrament was kept more fittingly near the altar and closer, again, to, due to its sacred nature and for allowing access for the faithful to adore him. So it's around this time that we start to see people who want to be near our Lord come to just be in his presence when he is in occupying a tabernacle in a local church. So just think about this for a second. Our practice of reserving the blessed sacrament from what we've gone through so far, this practice is as old as the church itself. It's over 2,000 years old. We've been doing this from the beginning. This is how important the real presence is and why we come here to adore our Lord. We're doing, may not look the same, but what we're doing, Christians have been doing since the very beginning. The practice of reserving the Eucharist in religious houses was so universal that there is no evidence to the contrary even, even before the year 1000. In fact, numerous regulations, you can find them written everywhere, which provided protection of the sacred elements and as even one of the wording went from 
profanation by mice and impious men. The Blessed Sacrament was to be kept under lock and key and sometimes in a receptacle raised high enough to be out of easy reach of hands that would do harm to our Lord. So here we are. Now I've kind of skipped many, many years, but around the year 1000, it is commonplace for tabernacles to be in churches. Tabernacles with a lock and a key to keep our Lord safe from those who would do Him harm in the Blessed Sacrament. The real presence is almost taken for granted by Christians all over the world at this point. No one's ever challenged this teaching because it's so so basic and so foundational to our beliefs. Until we get to a man named Berengarius, and I could be saying that wrong, but I don't really care. Outside of the Gnostics, he was the first person to challenge the doctrine of the real presence significantly. There were multiple local councils held around France, where he was from. He signed many retractions of his statements and then attacked those retractions that he made. And this thing escalated all the way up to Pope Gregory VII, who wrote a retraction and almost a creed for Berengarius to sign and repent of his, his bad teachings, which he did and then retired on an island somewhere so that he couldn't cause any more trouble anywhere else. And out of this controversy, there's almost a Eucharistic renaissance, as Father Hardin put it in this book. But from the 11th century, so the 1000s on, devotion to the Blessed Sacrament reserved in the tabernacle become more and more prevalent all over the Catholic world. It's about this time that we see members of religious orders of men and women taking the lead in this in in starting Eucharistic processions and acts of adoration, like different devotions, like the 40 hours devotion and, and different things of this nature. St. Francis of Assisi, who was never ordained a priest, had a great personal devotion to Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. And it was this clear faith in Christ's presence in the Eucharist that sustained him during his severest trials. It was the same faith which inspired a whole new tradition among religious communities of women. Convents had the sacrament reserved for adoration apart from Mass and Holy Communion. And we still have convents and monasteries like this today, even here in Missouri, up in Clyde. The Benedictine sisters that have their, on their perpetual adoration. I believe it's Clyde. But, so that brings us through the 1000s, the 1100s. We're starting to see, this is where we see the things that we still do today almost exactly the way we do them, they were doing them then. So this is just a thousand, just a thousand years, a thousand years ago, a thousand. And we're doing them the same. 
This past June and the June before, Corpus Christi procession we did like this, which brings me to this next point, the Feast of Corpus Christi. This comes about in, around the, in, in the 1200s by an order of Pope Urban IV. He's the one who institutes the Feast of Corpus Christi. And when establishing the feast, the, post, the Pope stressed the love of Christ who wished to remain physically with us until the end of time. Which takes us back to the Gospel of Matthew, the very end. His promise. After he gives them the great commission to baptize all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all he commanded them, he says, and behold, I am with you always to the close of the age. Right here in the Blessed Sacrament. In the Eucharist, said the Pope, Christ is with us in his own substance. For when telling the apostles that he was ascending into heaven, he said, Behold, I am with you all the days, even to the consummation of the world. Different translation of the same quote I just read. Thus, comforting them with the gracious promise that he would remain and be with them, even by his bodily presence. This feast marks the point of modern Eucharistic adoration as we know it today. In a monstrance, surrounded within the beautiful setting of the sanctuary of the altar and the churches, whereas before it was always adored, maybe reserved in the tabernacles, now this is around the time that it comes out Monstrances become popular and everyone, and now you see them everywhere. And from about 1262, three, four, somewhere in there, to now, and what we're doing now, this is, that is when it started. 1264. And so that's a very brief, bird's eye view of, of the history of Eucharistic adoration. And with the, oh, let me mention with the Feast of Corpus Christi, we get our beautiful hymns that we sing during adoration, like O Salutaris, which we sung once we exposed our Lord here tonight. And then tomorrow morning, we'll sing the Tantum Ergo, which came from the hymns written for the Feast of Corpus Christi, all written by the great St. Thomas Aquinas. And so that's our brief history of adoration. And so why, why is it important for us to adore Christ in the Blessed Sacrament? Given what we know about the real presence of our Lord in the Eucharist, it makes sense that we want to be as close as we can to him in this life. This is a small taste of the beatific vision. It's like a slice of heaven, if you will, to spend time with our Lord here and get to know him a little bit in our hearts and just physically being with him. 
There's just something about being with the ones that we love that makes, that, that can't even be compared to anything else. Of course, he's always with us in our hearts and in our minds, but he's really and truly present with us in the blessed sacrament. So this is, this is akin to, to us going to visit our parents and spend time with our father, wherever he may be, or our mother, or whoever, spending time with the ones we really love. Even if no words are said and you just are there with them, Sometimes that's all we need. And I think that's why we come. And people that have never come to adoration before experience it for the first time. And from those I've talked to, say about the same thing. It's like sitting with someone that we love. And and the first letter of John, so not the Gospel of John, but the letters that he wrote, he says, Beloved, let us love one another for, the love, for love is of God and he who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God for God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Very similar to something else John wrote, I think. We all know from every sporting event everywhere since, since they've been filming sporting events, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So, if, so we know God is love. And what does love want? But love wants to be near what it loves. So not only do we want to be near our Lord, for that small slice of heaven on earth. But our Lord wants to be near us because he loves us so much and he's going to be with us to the end of the age that he wanted this. He wants us to be here and he wants to be here with us. And so that's, that's basically it there. God loves us so much that he, he doesn't want to be just with us spiritually in our hearts and prayerfully in our, in our thoughts. He loves that obviously and we, those are good things that we always have to do to keep him in our hearts and minds but he wants to be with us physically here like we are now. And so, that's, that's it. That's, that's what he wants. And that's, that's my reflection. And I want to finish with just one more Bible verse from the Old Testament this time, from the second book of Maccabees, chapter 15, verse 38 says, If it is well told and to the point, that is what I myself desired. If it is poorly done and mediocre, that was the best I could do. Thank you.